0: We continue in our time of worship with the reading of God's word, having given back in worship to the God who, uh, who needs nothing. He doesn't need what we provide him. We need what he provides us, and yet we, we give back. And he gives us his word. Proverbs 30 verse five says, every word of God proves true. And so not only giving back some of the material things that God has already given us, when he gives us a word, our response is to give his word attention, respect. If you're able, please rise at this time for the reading of God's word. From the book of Exodus, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. This is the word of God. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Yahweh called out of the mountain, saying, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Well,
1: let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you've given us your revealed word, and your revealed word is the truth. And we thank you that we know that in a world that is confused by what is right, what is wrong, what is light, what is dark, what is truth, and what is error, we do not have that issue for we know that you are God and you have given us your truth and thus we ask you to use that truth this day to bring about a better understanding of our passage and to convict our hearts that we might grow in our love for you it's in Christ's name we pray amen two things if you cannot hear me in the back I will not be offended if you do this I've taken my antibiotics for 10 days, and the, the hearing came on in my left ear, and I stopped yesterday, and the hearing is going back out of my left ear. So I don't have that depth. I can't tell how far I'm projecting. I asked my wife just a minute ago when I came back, I said, how do I sound? And she says, talk louder. <laughs> so I'll talk louder. So please, don't be offended. Uh, I will not be offended. Excuse me. Hopefully I'm not shouting at you. Yeah, you'll notice that today's passage, we're in Exodus 19, 4 through 5, and some of you have to be saying, oh no, we're going backwards. How come we're not in the fourth commandment? We should be in chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is because as I was trying to squish it all into one sermon, I realized I'd have you here for about 90 minutes, and I didn't think you guys would, would, would hold on for 90 minutes, nor did I think it was right. And so we need to put that into two, because the the, the keep of the Sabbath is the, the uh, commandment of the Ten Commandments that gets chucked by today's evangelical, mainstream evangelism, or evangelical church, excuse me. And I want to show you the error of that, and I need to take time and walk you through that so you can appreciate it. There's also another reason As I'm looking through some of the commentaries, as I'm dwelling back on my own preaching on this area, I feel convicted that I have not grounded enough of the truth of the Ten Commandments in God's love for us. You could possibly walk away and think, yeah, yeah, those are just the laws and I hate rules and it just sounds too much like legalism. And I would be terrified, I would be I would, I would be in fear if I did that to you as your pastor. So today we're going to take a step back and I want to show you last, we did last week talk a little bit about verse number 6 of chapter 19, but I want to get into really particularly uh, verses 4 through 5. And then the title of this, pa- of this message is Diagnosing Your Love for God Problem. And some of you might say, well I don't have a love for God problem. Well, let me put it to you this way. We all have a love for God problem because we all sin. And in the midst of our sin, we are loving self or something else more than we love God. So as long as we can agree on that, and you can see that I'm not preaching at you. I spent the whole week having the Lord convict me of my my lack of love for God. And so I wanted to be able to convey back to you so that hopefully you can take the same journey I took and feel the weight of Of the Holy Spirit's conviction that 2024 needs to be a year where I love God more demonstratively outwardly as well as in my heart and how do I go about doing that I don't want to just say you need to do it and not show you that the 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 passage that God graciously tells us what that looks like and how we can do that so the proper response to God's love for us is covenantal obedience, that's what we're going to see in the passage today, and sincere worship. We're going to study God's love for us so that we can assess our love for God and see how it measures up. So our takeaway, as you're looking at the outline there, it's a little bit more wordy of a takeaway. There's really two different angles that, that this passage is dealing with. First, it's this angle, your lack of love of God may be due to your confusion and it can be temporal confusion the world has a way of confusing us it's got a different message than the word of god so your lack of love of god may be due to your confusion about who he is and what he has done for you or and this is the more serious of the two you may have a wrong assumption about being a part of his covenant people this is as much and desire to make sure we don't allow a distortion of our love to be acceptable, as it is to realize that he gives us an idea of whether or not we're part of the covenant community. And if we're not, the most gracious thing I can do for you is to show you evidence that you can take back, look at, and say, is this what I demonstrate in my word in my deed, in my thought life, to my God, while, whether it's in, in the silence of, of who I am or it's interacting with other people, this is the time to make sure that we are the covenant people of God. And if we're not, Lord, have mercy. Take care of it before you breathe your, breath, your last breath. An eternity alienated from the God who loves you is a terrible place to be. So we'll take a look at Point number one there, Yahweh is Almighty God who redeemed you for a divine relationship. I didn't choose Almighty God because it was a a cool attribute to bring out. I I use that because that's the attribute that this passage brings out. Let's take a look at Exodus 19.4. And, we'll, and we'll, we'll just walk through this. You've already heard Rob Roy read it, so I'm going to expound on it as we go through it. You look at it in your Bibles as I carry us through. You yourselves, in the Hebrew, the you is emphasized all the way through this. It's not the I of God, it's the you of you. His people, at least his professing people. So you say you are part of the covenant or part of the, the community of God. This, is, this, this constant you, you, you is going on in this passage. You yourselves have seen. The idea is that they had personally experienced Yahweh's salvation. He redeemed them out of Egypt. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. In other words, I took this superpower and made them nothing. I took the gods, the false gods of the Egyptians and showed they have no power to stop me. I made it so they were nothing in your eyes and you could see clearly. And if that wasn't enough, I took Pharaoh, the human leader, the one who was the representative of Satan, wearing the the headpiece, the emblem on his headpiece of a snake, of the serpent. And I destroyed him and his whole army You've seen my power, is what he's emphasizing here. And let's continue. And and then he shifts, and this is a key shift. He moves from power to care. Look at this, and how I bore you on eagle's wings. This is the picture of the tender care he has of shouldering them on his wings in their flight out of slavery And then it's going to continue. What does he do? Does he drop them in the middle of the wilderness and say adios? Try some more to be good? And just leave them? No, 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 no. He bores them on his wings, bears them on his wings. Why? What purpose? And brought you, again, emphasize, so they get it not any other nation. I could have chosen any nation. I chose you because you are the people who are the descendants of Abraham who I covenanted with. I chose you to, to bring you to myself. So there's a goal in mind. Redemption always has an end it. A, a telos is what the Greek would use. It has an end goal in mind. It isn't. I brought you out of Egypt to free you. Be on your own, like a big brother or something. No. I brought you out of Egypt. I freed you from slavery so that you would engage with me in a relationship, and it's a covenant relationship, a relationship whereby you say, "I." I am your God, and, and I say you are my people. If you're going to be my people, then there are ways you need to live as my representatives to the rest of the world. The end game is if you are going to be my people, I am going to give you a new identity and a new purpose. You will no longer live for your own, for your own being, your own welfare. You live for my will, And my will is that I use you to complete the plan of redemption over the earth that I have created that has gone disastrously south, if you will, by way of mankind's desire to be their own God. So let's look at this. In your primary view of your relationship with Jesus, do you find that Jesus, you see him as a friend? Oh, did I get this? in my face when I was attending as a brand new Christian, a liberal church, Jesus is your friend. And it's true, Jesus is your friend, but it is a lopsided understanding of who God is. He's this, uh, he is expressing his power, his almighty power here. Do you stand in awe when you think of your God? Or do you see him as a pal you can shoulder around with and he kind of winks at sin? And he kind of says, ah, it's all right. You gave it your best shot. Just move along. Let's go. Let's, let's enjoy life. It's all about enjoying life. We're buds. That's what I got initially. And that's a, it's a warped understanding. It does God a disservice, and it did my relationship with God a disservice. Are you blown away by his perfect care for you? Or do you find yourself grumbling? God's way is not good enough for me. There's nothing of value in this difficult time. Why would he do that? He obviously doesn't love me, or he wouldn't have me go through this situation. And I mean any situation we go through in life. That means he somehow isn't in control. He's not really a sovereign, he's an almost sovereign. Regarding your life, he's not sovereign, because no loving God would let you go through that. Or is what he allowing you to go through tied to his plan of redemption as it relates to redeeming you and giving you the new identity as well as what you will do in in bringing his plan of redemption to others. Let's look at point number two, Yahweh. Yahweh condescended. For those who are confused by that, that's a weird word. We don't use it very much. And when we do use it, it's almost sarcastic. Don't, make, don't condescend to me. Don't look down on me somehow, like you're out above me. That's not the way we see it here in the sarcastic form. No, it says Yahweh condescended. In other words, he stoops down from heaven. The God of heaven comes to earth where man is and where the earth has been polluted by sin. Yahweh condescended to covenant with you to change your identity and give you a divine purpose. Let's look at this again, and as we see this, we uh, we look at now to Exodus 19, five through six. It says this, now therefore, in verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, we're gonna look at what a covenant actually is, you shall be my treasured possession. You can, for those of you who take notes, this is a segula, S-E-G-U, L-L-A-H, if you were to put it in the English. I'm going to say Segula so many times. When you sit down next to me at the the time of fellowship and we break bread, you're going to say, I got Segula. Because I want you to know it's so unique of a term that we, we pass right over. I tell you, I miss this. I'm constantly studying as I'm working through the, and I found an author. I found a scholar who pointed this out, who knows the language better than some of the other scholars I was reading. And I was like blown away by what a beautiful term this is. And I want to share it with you. So it ups your understanding and your love for God. He's not only the almighty God who redeemed you for a divine relationship. He is the one that has committed by way of covenant to change your identity and your purpose. So he says this, and looking at verse five again after the word covenant. You shall be my treasured possession, my segula among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then your ESV says, and you shall be. We talked about this the other day. That's a, that's a one-letter word that gets attached to another word in, in the Hebrew. And that one letter can be interpreted as and, but, when, But I don't think it's that at all. I think he's now identifying. He's saying this thing called a treasured possession, this is how you'll be my treasured possession. So you could read it this way. For all the earth is mine. Scratch uh, out the word and and put in. That is, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will, and he's talking to Moses. This is God talking to Moses. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Well, let's first look at what a covenant is, That this covenant that brings change. doesn't bring change to God in essence in any way. God is incapable of change because change suggests imperfection at some point, needing a greater perfection. God can't change in essence because he is already perfect. So we agree with that. But there is some relational stuff going on here. So a covenant is this. It's a formal, permanent agreement between two parties. It is different from a contract, and that is, it is permanent. So we're not dealing with today's understanding of a contract. A covenant changes the identity of both parties in relation to how they relate to each other and how they relate to the world. We're going to see this changes how God is relating to the world in his plan. Does it change God's essence? Absolutely not. His original plan was Adam and Eve. We're going to obey him, and he's going to send them out to the four corners of the earth gradually as they bring the garden out to the four corners of the earth. Was there an oops? No. Plan B is not plan B because God oopsed, if I can make that into a verb. No, plan B is plan B because God knew all along that mankind would fail in this, so we move into plan B. So we see here that a covenant is designed to change the identity of both parties in relationship to each other and in relationship to how they relate to the world. And you're you're sitting there going, Nick, boy, I need help with this one. This is confusing. This is hurting my head. I'm glad it's hurting your head as well. So let's take a look at this. You may not have realized how much... The marriage covenant helps us understand God. Paul deals with it in chapter 5 of Ephesians to help us understand. It is a, 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 a way of, an analogy of sorts to help us understand this amazing God. So the marriage covenant, the marriage covenant is for life. No one makes the marriage covenant saying, at least Christians don't, saying, well, when things get hard, I'm out. Sorry, I'm in the, uh, uh, the, the time frame, the idea of recycling. I'm gonna go get something else. I'm done with this can. Throw it in the bin and let it get recycled. We don't do that. We think of the, the godly way of thinking of it, the way God intended marriage is forever. It is a lifelong covenant. Number two, although it is not designed to change everything about you, it is designed to change you. I don't know why this doesn't get communicated. I didn't know why I didn't get this communicated to me in my premarital counseling. America screams, you get married and you just make sure. He loves me so much he doesn't change my identity. Wow, what a lousy husband he is. And you're going, what? We're individualists. He shouldn't change my identity. Well, according to Ephesians 5, he's supposed to be helping you be sanctified with the Word of God so that you're imaging more and more the, the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He's changing your identity relationally of what you convey to each other and what you convey to others. And the same is true because it's a partnership. The woman, the wife, the spouse does the same thing. She's partaking in this in that she lovingly conveys also to the husband his shortcomings. It's a Matthew 18 principle and and what it means to change and have that confronted. It's a beautiful picture. The oneness attribute of marriage is designed to change your relational identity with each other and with the world. Your relational identity is changed through the oneness of marriage. While you once were committed foremost to yourself, everyone, come on, we come into a relationship. It's not a bad thing. Our commitment is to us. We understand that. We want to be Now, don't don't hear this. I'm not saying that you don't have a commitment to God, but we're it. We're not covenanted with anyone else. Certainly, we show honor to God, but it's us until a covenant is established with our spouse. While you were once committed foremost to yourself, you now seek oneness, which is, men, listen carefully. It is a partnership in life. You co-rule with your spouse. You do not play sovereign in the marriage, and they bow to your, your decision-making. That's not what is meant. It is a co-ruling. It is a, the man leads, the woman comes alongside. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He seeks her understanding. He seeks her wisdom. He seeks to be united in oneness with her. If that's not possible, and sometimes it's not, very, very, very rare then the husband must lead the family, knowing that he is accountable to God. So we continue. Not only is it a oneness, a partnership, in life with the other person, but it's also demonstrated, or the manner in which you respond to the world is in oneness. I did, it took me forever to get this as a husband. I didn't have the mentor coming alongside me, the man discipling me, the Paul in my life that could say, first off, Nick, stop being trying to be king over your castle and thinking your wife is lesser than you. And second, Nick, as it relates to this, you need to understand that God is working his mission out through both of you. Nick, when you say, and when someone comes up to you and says, hey, can I meet with you here at such and such a time? Guess what it took me forever to get figure out? My wife can attest to this. Maybe I should check with my wife first, see if I could actually do this together, because she's got the schedule book. This is demonstrating oneness to the world. I go to the world realizing and showing the world I am in oneness with my wife. I, com- I do things according to our partnership, our oneness in our relationship. Wonderful. Starting to get an idea of what a covenant looks like? Hopefully you're starting to transition this into your covenant with God. Although Yahweh had covenanted with the patriarchs to be their God, he now addressed the people that make up the nation. The patriarchs, he said to each one of them, I'm your God, I've been the God of your fathers, we're going to, re- we're not going to, re-institute. We're going to restate the covenant. And the, and the patriarch is thrilled about that. The almighty God wants to have a relationship with them. Family status to a status as a nation. And not just any nation. The nation that says that it's supposed to be the community of God. The covenant community of God. It says this. Yahweh had redeemed them out of Egypt to covenant with them to be their God. Interesting. He puts it in a question format. And the people respond back. And we've already gone through this in chapter 19. You're going to see it again later on again. They're going to say, he's basically saying, this is the stipulations. The law is the stipulation of what it'll look like for us to be in a covenant agreement and a covenant relationship. And they say, yeah, we'll do that. No one's forcing them to be doing this. The law represents the stipulations of the covenant just like the stipulations of a marriage. You never see the bride or the groom dispute the stipulations or conditions of a marriage in their wedding vows. Chidera says to Thomas, whoa, 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 that last thing you said in you, you, whoa, no, that's not gonna work out. We gotta fix this right here and now with in front of all these witnesses because <laughs> I'm not all in. She'd never say that. You didn't say that. You knew. You went into your, your marriage laying out. These are the stipulations. This is what is important. The vows of the wedding, of the marriage I should say, are designed to keep the relationship morally pure. No one else a part of it. It's ours and we honor God in through, through this. And we've made this relationship, this covenant relationship to God as well as to the very person that we are calling our spouse. No Christian ever questions the mark of a healthy relationship, the marriage relationship and oneness. Oh, the world cries foul, but we don't. How many times have you heard me refer to my wife as my bride? Do you know why I do that? To constantly remind me of who she was and who she is when I covenanted it to her because I can fall into a trap and let all that baggage be, that we have dealt with over the time kind of dull me. All the things in the world that dull me. I want her to always be reminded in my mind that she's my bride, not because I, I, I'm something special, but it's a constant reminder by the words I use, this is the woman that I stood before God and covenanted with. I don't ever want to forget that. I don't want to dishonor my God, and I do. And I don't want to dishonor my wife, and I do but my God has given me forgiveness as a means to be right with him and to be right with her. I want to be as quickly back in oneness with both. That's what I need to grasp as it relates to this. Our our covenant with God should also have the same marks of oneness. It should be a relationship of moral purity in which we partner with God, God actually stooping down and and engaging us and saying, you're going to be, if you choose, you're going to be the representative of me on earth to carry out my plan of salvation. That's stooping down. That's partnership. That's a covenant relationship. It should be a relationship of moral purity in which we partner with God to carry out his redemptive plan for us and for others. Praise be to God. I hope you're seeing the beauty of this. When it comes time where Satan is drawing you out and wants to, you to sin, to pull away from God, be reminded this is the truth of who my God is. He loves me this much. He redeemed me for a relationship. He's changing my identity. I don't have to be that slave to sin practically because he saved me legally, if you will, by being the sacrifice for my sins by living the perfect life. And he is also changing me as life continues on. So now let's look at this under not just the covenant. Let's look at Israel's new identity that brings value and purpose. You have value, I'm going to attest to you, not because of how great you are. Isn't that interesting? I said that that way on purpose. We subtly believe that. Sometimes we allow that truth. That's, the, that's a biggie that, that Satan likes to use. You are entitled to so much more, Nick. You need to just go out there and get everything in life you can get. You deserve it all. I feel like a, it's a Sprite commercial. Image is everything. Just go live life. No, stop. Our identity is in Christ Jesus. Let's, let's, he's the one that gives us value in our identity. Let's listen to this. So let's define a treasured possession. I told you I would. I told you segula was a unique word. Let's look at this. Eight times it's used in the Bible, with six refer, referring to the nation of Israel. Okay, we got it. Let's look at the other two then. The other two uses of it in the Bible. Uh, these are very concrete uses. First Chronicles 29.3, if you want to turn there, whether it's on, in your phone, on your iPad, or or in your, in your Bible, you'll see it. And I hope that, that this will help you. It'll help bear out this truth. First Chronicles 29.3 says, moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the Holy House, this is King David making this declaration. This is what he, in, in addition to all that I have provided for the Holy House, he's talking about by way of the coffers of the nation of Israel. Every nation has money at its access uh, to, to access the the prosperity and the moving and the advancing. This is the building of God. they in a. Uh, this is, I'll just leave it this way. This is the building of God's temple, and he says, "I've used basically." He's now he's going beyond just talking about the coffers of Israel. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the house of the holy house, I have a treasure of my own. In other words, he has a segula. He has personal treasure. When when the dignitaries would come into his presence, they would say, here is this gift. Here is gold. Here Here is a precious item. Here is silver. Whatever it is, this is for you. And it would build up his own treasury. It is not the nation's treasury. It is his own personal treasury. And in particular, the king uses it for a specific, significant event that the king gets the, the uh, privilege of identifying what that is. But the treasury is always saved by the king for a very special thing. So we continue on. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own. I have a segula of my own, of gold and si- silver. And because of my devotion to the house of, of my God, I give it to the house of of my God. David says, no, 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 this isn't just going to be the nation taking care of this holy temple and building it. I'm putting in from my own treasury, my own personal special treasury, my own personal treasure. And then in Ecclesiastes 2.8, we got Solomon going the other direction. Same, same idea of a treasury, but he's not doing so well. But let's take a look at this. In Ecclesiastes 2.8, he's talking about the vanity side of things. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings. Where did he get that from? Because he was the wisest king and they came from all over the world to see his kingdom and they would hear his wisdom and they would bring gifts they wanted to be in a good relationship. The gifts were intended for his personal treasury. I'm sure some of them went by way of uh, the, uh, you know, agreements that were the governmental agreements that came to that. We'll do this for you, you know, the, the trade and commerce. But they bring, typically, personal gifts. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings. The, I, the word there is segula. So we now know what he's talking about for, <clears throat> and, and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man, and he goes on to say, and it meant nothing. Vanity of vanities. It was like vapor to me. I lost interest, and there was no value to it. But at least we get an idea of what a segula is. So now let's look at the, we've moved from the concrete, let's look at the metaphorical. It's, un, it's not unique, it's, it's neat, I'll say it that way, to see that... Segula in the metaphorical, we have found it in the archeological finds of the Hebrew culture. It's in the, uh, I, I can always I always stumble on this, Ugaritic. I always want to call it by a different name. Ugaritic and Akkadian cultures as well that predate the uh, Hebrew culture. And they have a different, they have a meaning for a Segula that is more metaphorical. It's not like the, the concrete treasure. It's actually a role that they play in society. So a segula was a covenant partner trusted with a special responsibility to represent the sovereign. So the king would say, Mark, I want you to do this. You are my treasured, you are my treasured possession. You need to represent me and go and do this. And you go... Oh, this is interesting. Not only would Mark be a treasured possession because he's a covenant people, a people that covenanted with him and very valuable personal treasury of the kings, but he represented the king. He represented as much as he could the exact imprint of the king as much as he could. Israel was Yahweh's valued personal treasure, Yahweh's segula that he will use as he sees fit And how does he see fit? He sees fit to say, Israel, when you make covenant with me and I make covenant with you, you are going to be my treasured possession. And I see fit that you will be used by me to bring the blessing to the nations. And then that's where we get into verse six, where he says, what does that all look like? That's why I told you to put a slash through the and. It's not something separate. He's now explaining what that would be. And that would be a, a king of royal, a king, excuse me, a nation of, ki- uh, I keep saying kings, a nation of priests, a set-apart set or holy nation. That's what, how that segula role plays out. He's explaining it in chapter six. And we talked about that last week, so I'm not going to go into it in greater detail. All mankind is made in the image of God. Only his covenant people are his treasured possession, his segula. Two different things. That they have that mission. We were talking last week about carrying the name. That's part of the segula. You carry the name of God to, the, to either before the countries or to the countries. So we have that idea, an idea of that. So now let's look at uh, number C there underneath the second bullet point. The Christian's new identity that brings value and purpose. What is that? Well, first off, we need to look at what's going on in Malachi. And you see on the bulletin the reference to Malachi. It's Malachi three sixteen through 18. Malachi lived. This is the, the last book in our Old Testament. Malachi lived. He was the, the last prophet to live. And then for 400 years, the kingdom goes silent. God is not going to communicate with the kingdom. Until the return of Christ. So in Malachi, the the temple has been rebuilt, and the people are a mess. The people are not acting like covenant people. They are breaking the covenant every which way. They are the worst segulas you could possibly have. They are not representing the sovereign the way they should. So he says this in Malachi 3:16. This is fascinating. Then arose, excuse me, then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another. So there's a remnant. Most of Israel is acting like a covenant partner of Satan rather than Yahweh. And yet there's a there's a remnant that fears God still. And they get together and they say this. Then, then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another. And Yahweh paid attention. The idea is that he's pr- they're getting together to pray to Yahweh and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared Yahweh and esteemed his name. And verse 17, they shall be mine, says Yahweh, These, this remnant that fear him. Those, excuse me, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day, oh, not that day, not 460 B.C., No, no, no. And someday later, someday when I reveal to you, when I return and come and speak to you again, someday in the opening of this New Testament, this new covenant. They shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in in the day when I make up uh, my treasured possession. It's really cool here. I guess I'm geeking out. And some of you may go, Dude, you have lost your mind. You get excited about the weird things. I hope you don't see it that way. He didn't say they shall be mine because they're my treasured possession. He didn't say it that way. He adds in two words. He says this. They shall be mine says Yahweh of hosts in the day when I make up or I acquire, when I make selection. Oh, this is fascinating. My uh, uh, when I make a selection of my treasured possession, So what happened in is happening in Malachi is Malachi, God is saying, look, 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 look. The covenant people, you're not all Segulas. There's some delineation here, and we're going I'm gonna continue to show you this delineation. But one day I'm gonna make, I'm going to acquire, by way of me, my selection, a Segula that will that will be a covenant people that will represent me well. They shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son or his son who, he ser- who serves him. So we have another indicator. Not only do they fear him, they serve him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between, and he's talking about the covenant community, the distinction between the righteous in the covenant community, that's ethnic Israel, and the wicked. It was actually ethnic Israel is acting like the wicked, but there's a remnant that are a delineating remnant. They are the righteous. And then he leaves one more. He says, and between one who serves God, one who serves Elohim, the mighty one, between one who serves God and one who who does not serve him. So no longer will Israel be defined ethnically as the covenant community. They'll be defined. The segula will be known by those who fear Yahweh. In other words, those who revere and trust Him, those who are righteous, those who follow His laws. We're in the Ten Commandments. You can look at the Ten Commandments and and measure it to your own life and see what kind of fruit this tree is producing. Those who serve Him, do you do your will over His will? That's the difference of serving. So we have this, and guess what Peter does? I love Peter. You know why I love Peter? Because I say stupid things too. And Peter sticks his foot in his mouth quite regularly when Christ is uh, uh, walking with him. And and Jesus has to to get a hold of him and say, Peter, 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 Peter! Just let your mind catch up with your mouth, would you? Well, Peter gets it right. God is invested in Peter. God is changing Peter. God is revealing his truth to Peter after Jesus has gone on to heaven and the Holy Spirit indwells. And we have this from 1 Peter 2.9. And we're going to read 2.9 through 2.12. And I want you to see this. This is so cool because Peter, the one who is so bold and sticks his foot so often in his mouth, is now Peter who is so bold and getting it right and he's not gonna back down. He's gonna say something that the, when the Jews heard this, the Jews would take big time offense. Listen to this. In 1 Peter 2.9, he's speaking to all the, the believers who have placed their trust in, in Yahweh, but in Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Which word did he use? There's only one word in Hebrew that can say segula. So in Malachi, he had to say make up. He had to add the understanding. He had to add words to say, not that you are the segula. I'm going to make you up as the segula. It's not focusing on who you are. It's focusing on the group I'm going to make you. I do the selecting, he says. In Greek, this is for geeks like me, in Greek, you can use one word. That means segula acquired. Or you can use a different word. It's a derivative. It's a different word, though. Different uh, root form. It means the acquired segula. What do you think Peter uses? Peter uses the exact same verbiage that took four words in the Hebrew, if you or excuse me, in the English translation, only two in the Hebrew, that meant the acquired segula. And he uses the one Greek word, That means acquired segula. What is he saying? He's saying what God was saying in Malachi before the the end of of that period, and then there would be no more speaking, is one day I'm going to to select a group of people who are my faithful segula, who are my faithful treasured possession, who will have a new identity, and who will have a new purpose, and that purpose is to fulfill my will in, in advancing my plan. And Peter picks up on that. And he says, by using that word, you are this people. And I'm here to tell you, if you were Jewish and you didn't believe in Jesus Christ as your Messiah, you would pick that up and you would be offended. How dare you take what was, what was meant in Malachi for the Jewish people who had righted themselves and you apply it to Jew or Gentile? That is now demonstrating, Yahweh, I put my trust in you. You are my God and my Savior. The one that says, I want to follow your laws. The one that says, I will serve you by doing your will and not mine. You're going to let a Gentile be called that? And Peter says, you better believe it. Because that's where we stand. That's the definition of those who are covenant people. We have to see that. And then he goes on and he says it so, so beautiful. So beautifully in uh, 1 Peter two eleven, this is kind of like the therefore statement. Look, I selected you as the covenant people. Pe- Peter's saying, God selected you, so this is how you live. And so in, in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, he says, Behold, I urge you as sojourners, do you hear that language? That's Old Testament language. Peter is rocking it to the Jews. He is crushing their world. He is saying to the Christian, you're it. You're exactly what I was prophesying before. This is the value I have in you. I selected you. You are my, there is no greater personal treasure. This is the king's treasure. He says this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Those were words used to describe the Sinai situation. The Jews would know that. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Stop living for your old fleshy desires, is what he's saying. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, and this is Gentile or Jew, whoever happens to be a Christian, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify you on that day. How how amazing that is. You know what, I did realize I did something. I want you to see one more thing before we close up here. I've got about three minutes that I want to, because I don't want, like to go over 50 minutes. You guys tolerate me for a long time. Listen to this in 1 Peter 2.10. I, I jumped over this. This is so cool. Once you were not a people, oh, every Gentile would get that. Every Jew would know that. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's quoting from Hosea. Hosea was supposed to take a wife who was a harlot. She was an adulteress. And the first child is named, the male is named, not my people. The second, a daughter is named, have no mercy. And he says to them, I'm done with you as an adulteress in relationship. This is who you are to me. You have disgusted me. With your infidelity, excuse me, I said that wrong. No, I did say it right infidelity. With your lack of fidelity. With the fact that you, were, you weren't covenanted to me, you were covenanted to all the other gods. You went and married and worshiped, if you will, the, the gods of the false nations, the false gods of the nations, excuse me. But he says something else in Hosea. He says this, listen to this. In that day, this is Hosea 2, 21 and 23b. In that day, he starts off in 21a. And then he goes and drops down. There's some other stuff in between there. I want for purposes of our sermon to focus on this. On 23b, he says, I will have mercy on no mercy. No mercy is a physical human being. He is making sure that they understood that what we have here is we have God saying, I will take a people that I said I would have no mercy on, Gentiles, not part of the nation, and I will bring you into that. You will be adopted into this nation. And I will say to not my people, once you were not my people, you are now my people. It went from lo, a me, which is lo is the not, a me, my people, to a me, my people. That's us. That's us. Do we have a greater motivation not to sin against our God? Has he not done the work that is amazing? Is he not in his person, one who is so merciful that he redeems on his own? He calls us when we're unworthy to be called? Let me leave us with this. Is your lack of love of God based on confusion about who he is and what he has done for you? If so, and rejoice because he has opened your ears this day to know the truth and know when i am tempted to sin i need to be reminded of the love of my god for me and i'm telling you this preaching to myself and when the chug the temptation to sin is there nick what should you be doing my god redeemed me and i was not worthy to be redeemed. I was not even his people. I was his enemy. And we continue on. Jesus has redeemed you and given you and me a new identity and a purpose. So many people in this world, I've counseled so many people in this world that are professing believers that have no sense of their identity or of their purpose in this world. And oftentimes you find out through counseling they're not Christians. They're not part of the covenant community. And they're able to tell me that. I don't tell them that. I just put before them the, the this is what it looks like. This is the fruit you're producing. But if, it, if now you, as the covenant people, if this is you, and meaning that you realize, oh, thank you. This is what I needed. I needed to be reminded of this. This is what I will use. This is what I'll take into the next week. And I'll address my sin, I'll address my desire, and my temptations differently. I will, I will use the blessing of God to help my heart be, be settled, to be anchored in Christ at the time. But if you realize you are actually not a part of this covenant, people, you have no desire to be here come Sunday, the Lord's Day. You are someone who is, yeah, I could take or leave it. You are somebody who says, yeah, but, I would do his will, but you don't know my wife, and you certainly don't know my husband. Whatever it is, whatever but you use, if that's you, you need to start questioning. We need to recognize whether or not we are part of of God's covenant people. Realize that God has shown the world salvation through his son. He has identified the redeemer, the one who desires a relationship with you personally, not just the nation of Israel, but you personally, who is willing to covenant with you, to engage in a covenant similar, we talked about the similarities of marriage. Everyone knows that relationship is the most loving. It's also the most challenging because we're, we're married to a sinner. But it is designed to be the most loving. And who by Jesus' is atoning death and resurrection. What he, did he redeem you of? Sin. What cost? Do you realize that there's a ransom involved? And the ransom isn't to the devil. The ransom is to his father. There was a ransom, there was a payment that had to be made. God, I will do what is necessary. Heavenly Father, I will do what is necessary to pay the ransom to bring these people out of sin, the payment for their penalty, separation eternally from God. And Jesus died for us. That's how much he loves us. He paid the full ransom, there's not a penny missing. Praise be to God, if this is you, if you have never realized that, if your actions make you realize that, you know what? Maybe I just heard this. I was raised a Christian, my, quote, a Christian my whole life, and I'm not modeling this. I need to go to God in my prayer closet, metaphorically speaking, a private place, and repent and believe. Trust in who Jesus Christ is. Either way, whether you are someone who is confused or someone outside of the covenant. Today, today's the day to address it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have given us clarity. We thank you that you have given us and demonstrated your love to us, reminded us. It's all love. There's no part of it that's not. Remind us in the midst of the the hour, the moment of temptation of this, Whatever the world is doing to get its claws into us, remind us of these truths that we might not sin against you, that we might bring glory to your name. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that the Holy Spirit will not release them this week, that the Holy Spirit will convict them that this this day is the day they need to fall on their knees and repent, cry out to you, trust in you, and know that you are the God who redeems. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.